open your cerebral cortex and shift your lobes into upper beta phase because you are going to have Bitcoin knowledge transmitted directly into your vestibulocochlear. Your host at Bitcoin Knowledge is Trace Mayer, an early Bitcoin advocate since it cost a quarter, but this is not intended to be investment advice. A doctor of jurisprudence, but this is definitely not legal advice. And an investor in core cryptocurrency infrastructure, including Armory, BitPay, Kraken, and Mitagio, but this is not a recommendation of those services. Here, you get fed via direct mind download with pure and free Bitcoin knowledge. Welcome back to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast. We have with us today Adam Gibson. He's the founder of Join Market, has done a bunch of work on CoinJoin, Bulletproofs, uh, overall uh, single rabble rouser. Uh, thanks so much for being with us, Adam. Hi, nice to, nice to be here. I just want to clarify one point. Chris Belcher is the like founder of Join Market. I was a guy who sort of jumped on board straight away with him so but he it was his original idea so <laughs> to be fair you go first it might be dangerous <laughs> yeah, well that's another point yeah Let, let's start a little bit earlier like what was your life like before bitcoin came out right so my sort of work history is a kind of a mixture of engineering and and some teaching as well so i was a mathematics teacher for a while in in china actually and also i was uh, i was a nuclear engineer briefly i my, my training is kind of mathematics and physics and nuclear physics those kinds of things so before bitcoin i mean um, i i didn't pay much attention to stuff like cryptography it was just like another area that it wasn't that interesting to me but you know after the financial crisis i got really interested in finance and the issues around it you know the whole bailout situation and then when Bitcoin came along, it was like, oh, so actually there's this area of science that can really have this amazing interaction with these serious societal problems. And it really interested me. And then I got, I sort of fell into the rabbit hole of Bitcoin, but also cryptography at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you work on before? I mean, we've got, I guess you, you've been very fascinated in like the bulletproofs and mm -hmm. these uh, coin joins and stuff. So yeah. like what's kind of. Yeah. Did that? Did your did your work in nuclear physics and like uh, the mathematics beforehand lay a good foundation for you then to be able to? Yeah. I guess it didn't really necessarily help with the economics or the no. theory. No. Uh, but at least in terms of all the math. Well, I think I think everyone has this problem when they're coming into Bitcoin is just to understand it, uh, just to get any sense of how it relates to anything else in the world. It's so new, you know. And the luckily having a technical background, it gives you that advantage that you. When you read the white paper, you're not, you may be intimidated like everyone is, but you're not just completely lost at trying to understand something like, you know, timestamp servers, hash functions and, and so on, proof of work. And so having the technical background, I think, really helps. Yeah, so what I, what I first got interested in, once I realized what Bitcoin was, which was a real struggle, but once I realized what Bitcoin was, my first thought was, well, how could we, how could we make it easy or address this difficulty of the interaction between fiat money and and bitcoin because that's a really hard problem it's a political problem yeah it's a really hard political problem but thinking like an engineer and perhaps wrongly <laughs> uh, i thought oh maybe there's a kind of engineering partial solution to that because everyone at the time this is like from the beginning of 2013 onwards everyone was starting to think more and more about decentralized exchanges because mount gox was already a disaster as far as everyone kind of understood uh, even before it collapsed and so we were thinking decentralized exchange and I was thinking about, well, maybe we can start doing like peer to peer, like bank transfers in such a way that the bank doesn't know that you're buying Bitcoin. That was the kind of 
perhaps naive thought I had at the time, and several other people did. And so we got involved in, well, how about if we make a peer-to-peer transfer, but we can properly prove that the bank transfer occurred without the bank's involvement? And so we, we came up with a system called TLS Notary. And the idea was was more general than Bitcoin. It was just, when you visit a website, how do you prove to someone else that you visited that website? Yeah, And you can give them a screenshot, but it doesn't prove anything. It's kind of weird. Like even today, you can go into government offices and give them screenshots of things and say, look, I, you know. but it's it completely forgeable. Yeah, it's completely forgeable. But this cryptography plays in here, right? Because when you visit a website, you're using cryptography on the back end to actually prove, uh, to, to actually authenticate that the you're visiting your bank. And this would be HTTPS. Exactly. HTTPS. But we're still trusting certificate authorities. Right, right. But so the idea was that the point, the point, the root of trust in that scenario, if say I make a, I create a bank statement, is the bank itself. So if I use the bank's certificate, yeah, you have to trust the certificate authority of HTTPS. That's true. Which are subject to national security letters. As we've seen. Yeah, but that uh, danger is more on the side of revealing information, right? Here, it's more about the danger here would be somebody spoofing a certificate and actually creating a fake one. Yeah, so it's not national security letters, but it's the same level of threat. Yeah, the kind mm-hmm. of government level threat could could violate that. Because there are, what, 50 certificate authorities? So, I mean, yeah. it's a still relatively and, difficult and, and to compromise. Have, yeah, it's difficult. And there, but there have been stories, of, especially in Well, what China. was that, lava bit? Uh, the lava bit case was was a bit different, right? But the, the guy that Ladar Levison, right? He actually kind well, he of stood up to the right. He wouldn't reveal. He, he wouldn't, wouldn't. He wouldn't. He go destroyed along. the evidence, yeah. basically, as far as I remember the story. It was an incredible yeah. story, yeah. But anyway, I mean, the kind of peer to peer transfer ideas was really attractive to a lot of people, and eventually it became kind of. Well, it didn't become, but it was connected with what happened with Manfred Carrer. He created BitSquare, and he was sort of thinking about the same issue, like how can we allow people to do bank transfer for Bitcoin, but peer-to-peer. And I think that, I mean, there's a long story about, you know, what happened with TLS Notary. The issue is that it kind of worked for a while, but TLS, the TLS uh, algorithm changed. So nowadays we're talking about TLS 1.2 and 1.3, and our original, like, cryptographic construction doesn't doesn't actually work anymore with the new version. So it's like, well, it was a fun experiment, but <laughs> they can't really... Yeah, the, the world kind of moved on. It might be possible to recreate it in future with different algorithms, but it needs some research. Yeah, Yeah. so what exactly is going on with Join Market, and how does CoinJoin and CoinShuffle and Bulletproofs kind of all play into this? Right, so obviously an, a separate issue from, like... Fiat to uh, to Bitcoin transfer is the issue of Bitcoin itself being fungible or not. So CoinJoin is one of a few ideas that, that came out of the extremely active mind of uh, Greg Maxwell back around 2013. It, it seemed at that particular time he came up with like five or six different ideas. And this one was a very important one. And it was interesting because... It wasn't, unlike some of the other ideas, it wasn't really something new. It was something kind of intrinsic to Bitcoin that he noticed that you could actually collaboratively sign transactions together. So you and I, instead of... Trustlessly. Trustlessly, yeah, exactly. Instead of you and I making separate payments, we could both make our payments together in such a way that, as you say, we don't have to trust each other to make sure that we receive the right output amount. So CoinJoin in principle is something very simple to do, but the, the complexity of it is... Well, how do you get, especially like untrusted people, anonymous people to, to get together and do this? Even though they're not having to take a risk, they still have to like get onto the network and pass messages and worry about like denial of service attacks. So we could call that the coordination problem. You know, how do you get people to coordinate together 
and, uh, and do these coin joins. And so Join Market, which Chris Belcher came up with the idea at the end of 2014, I want to say. And he was thinking, well, you know what? That's what a market is for. It's to solve a coordination problem. So let's have a market. Let's have people sort of join some kind of encrypted anonymous message channel and just make offers. And you know, I'm prepared to do a coin joint if you pay me, you know, 100,000 Satoshi or whatever it is. Yeah, so we actually get an interest rate on using the Bitcoin yeah, in this system. People have recently been talking about the possibility of uh, inferring a time value of money from Lightning channels. And we, we kind of had some data along the same lines from Join Market over the first you know, two or three years of it running. Obviously, there isn't a number, partly because there's lots of uh, different people. You, you don't have like a global view of the statistics, right? You have your own personal view because you participate, but you don't see everyone else's numbers. But also, I think it's interesting. What I did observe is that there's a big kind of variation, like at the very larger amounts of money, then because there's a certain risk in taking part, people are more reluctant to, to participate at larger sizes. So, you know, we've seen numbers between uh, 0.5% and maybe 1% to 2% of the absolute high end in terms of annual uh, annual rates. But it's still in Bitcoin. Absolutely. And um, people are very keen to take part because, well, I mean, the people who are technically savvy enough to do it, are keen to take part because even if you only make like 0.5% a year, you're still actually participating in a market which creates a lot more fungibility for your coins anyway. So, you know, there's an argument. It could be like a 0% rate. But see, that's why it doesn't really quite give you the time value of money because it has this kind of, there's some utility in there. Right. I mean, there's there's more going into the subjective value calculation than just the the percentage return. You've got both time, yeah. which is a cost, and then yeah. additional privacy, which is a benefit which that is you're benefit, in yeah. addition to the money that's yeah, which, taking which, place. Which I suspect will play out the same way in Lightning, that we'll see numbers, but those numbers won't really be the time value of money because there's utility in having your coins in channels anyway. So, Or not, no, or locking them up and giving other people the ability to Yeah, uh, I mean, it's very, very complicated, right? But it's, it's really fascinating to think about, like, like is can we? It's really, it's really cool if we can actually have this kind of Bitcoin savings account, you know, even with low returns still. So how how do bulletproofs function? Like how do these things work? Right. So to talk about bulletproofs, we, we should really talk about confidential transactions. So let's. I, I think the natural lead in is what's the problem with CoinJoin? The problem with CoinJoin is that we have amounts. Each uh, coin, each UTXO has an amount. So. Uh, blockchain analysis is mostly about tracking those amounts. Uh, well, not mostly, but it's partly about tracking coins by looking at the amounts of different coins, like rounded amounts, and tell you something, or the fact that two different uh, UTXOs add up to a certain value and two other UTXOs add up to a certain value gives you another bit of information. And then you have so, mining fees. Yeah, kind of fees are another, another way of leaking information. So overall, there's a big problem with... Even if you do coin join, and so you're not sure who owns the coins, nevertheless, the kind of amount correlation tends to reveal data. So Greg Maxwell's, again, <laughs> Greg Maxwell's idea was confidential transactions where you actually have a cryptographic way to make the amount blinded. So it's kind of replaced with a random number, but it's done in such a way that you can still assure that the, the total input is equal to the total output minus the fee. You know, so. Uh, so that was really cool. And it's a very sort of big a set of different cryptographic algorithms all together to make that work. And one of the algorithms is, well, we're going to publish this random value as a blinded version of the amount, but uh, the problem is that the amounts are only allowed to, to be in a certain range. If they go over that range, it kind of wraps over. It's like an integer overflow, and it becomes negative. 
So if pump, somebody publishes a, a, ran, a random value, which actually underneath the hood corresponds to a negative amount, they can give themselves free coins. And they'll, they'll never spend that negative one. It'll just sit there. But they'll, they'll have created like extra coins in the other value. Well, this is one kind of problem we've got is we've either got the yeah. limited and amount issue or we've got the privacy issue. Yes, right? exactly. It's yeah. kind of a... Yeah, so there's almost like this fundamental theorem, I mean, almost, uh, that you have a trade-off. You either make sure you use a, a cryptographic protocol to make sure that the amount is in the right range so that that uh, inflation problem can't happen, or you have the problem where you're not 100% sure that the, the amounts are private. Yeah, there's it's kind of a lot of moving parts in that. Anyway, so, so bulletproofs, to explain that point, how that fits in, is, okay, we're going to prove that the number is in a certain range, but we, we, the problem is that proof can take up a lot of space on the blockchain. So we, we have to publish that proof onto the blockchain so everyone can verify it. But that proof takes up a lot of space, and we might be talking about like two kilobytes for a transaction just as a vague. And that's even with all the compression optimizations that have been made recently. Well, but, but what I'm right. trying to say is that that two kilobytes would have been before bulletproofs. But then, oh, okay. right, yeah. So, so then if we add in bulletproofs, which is a, a kind of just, just think of it as like a, it's the same basic cryptographic primitives, but it's done in a much more sophisticated way. And so it allows a kind of recursive process that sort of boils down the size of that proof to as small as it possibly can be. And for like a single output, it might be 700 bytes, which is already kind of in in the ballpark. Yeah, that could actually work. But then if you have like three or four or five outputs, you can they, they, they kind of aggregate. So instead of having 700 times five, you have 700 plus 150. It kind of logarithmically okay. falls in size. Yeah, which, which is in the paper that that you put out a few months ago. Yeah, uh, that's right. I, I, I wrote a long sort of description of it. it it's, I guess it's more for the technical developer audience who wants to like understand what they're doing because I think a lot of developers, I've met a couple at the conference who said to me, oh yeah, I really appreciate that paper because you know they, 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 they have to implement stuff but a lot of the time they have no idea like what is, what is really going on and, and it takes a long time. It took me a long time to go back through a lot of like academic papers and try and understand why what is all this at the first it's just like moon math they call it right but you you, you can kind of kind of build it up in steps when it, how many it's using what like five scalar points or something yeah so uh, a basic single and we're talking specifically about applying bulletproofs to to a range proof we were discussing that problem of how to make sure the oh uh, yeah because we didn't discuss the range proofs oh right well well i think we did didn't we? we were saying that if you need to have a proof that the amount doesn't that it okay. falls within a certain right amount. within a certain range if it, because if, it, if it's allowed to be any number in the whole set of possible numbers then it could end up being effectively right. a negative integer which creates this problem so the range proof is just some proof without revealing the number at all just revealing it's between you know for example zero and 100 it's not not revealing which number, but it's in that range. And yeah, these, these proofs tend to take up size. So bulletproofs really helps uh, both in the size of one individual proof, but also in making it possible to aggregate them in a way that really cuts down the, the, the average per output size. So once you've got bulletproofs, you've got a situation where you feel like, yeah, actually confidential transactions could actually work. The, the amount of data we're going to need to put on the chain is not crazy. Uh, it's reasonable. But there's still this kind of ongoing back and forth de debate, which I think might not be resolved in the near future. Because if you use bulletproofs, you're going to be using a system where you have absolute certainty that the amounts are never revealed, but you don't have that absolute binding to make sure the inflation never happens. And that, in theory, could happen if somebody discovers 
uh, a break of the elliptic curve discrete log problem. Yeah. yeah, now this is something we were talking about Yeah. Uh, with, let's see, we had Tim Ruffing, who's yeah. working on his PhD, Dr. Back, yeah. you know, and Christian Decker was mm-hmm. kind of had half an ear in the conversation. And for people who haven't listened to the week with Adam Back, I'd really recommend it on the podcast. So we were talking about this issue with like RSA or, or EXTA with the discrete log and how we have, like, this is a fundamental bedrock in, in cryptographic primitives, but at the same time, we don't fully understand the math. Yeah, what's going on? Maybe you could go a little bit more into this. Yeah, I, I can only sort of give you a vague level because I think it's a, it's a kind of a really deep mathematical question. But in number theory, right? Yeah, it, it, yeah. In I think the easiest way to understand it is think of all the integers. All the integers are made up of primes, almost like almost like the the, the atomic elements of the integers of the prime. So you know, get this particular number, you know, it's if I if I give you twenty twenty four, you know, it's twelve times. Two, so you know it's two times. Well, it's two to the power of three times uh, three. Is that right? Yeah. So in other words, it's, you can always break it down into a, a set of prime numbers. So the problem is that well, the good thing we could say is that if you take some huge number, you know it's um, it's constituted of primes, but you it's generally uh, it, it's very difficult to break it up into those primes. It's easy, easy to verify the, the composition of primes when you know it, but to find that composition of primes is a hard problem, and that's sort of the factoring problem, and RSA is kind of built out of that problem. But although we believe it's difficult, I think the right way to put it is that, that academics believe it's very, it's, there is no easy way, there's no like shortcut to get around to, to factor numbers. Uh, if they're right, then you know crypto systems based on RSA. Generally speaking, I can say that's 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 safe. And you've got a, something similar with what's called discrete log. So you know to keep it simple, discrete log is we're talking about modular modular arithmetic. So you know, like clock arithmetic, right? You know you go from zero up to you go from one up to twelve and back to one, right? So in modular arithmetic, you have a similar problem. It's not exactly the same, but we call it discrete log, where if you raise a number to a power a certain number of times, you get an output and you can't go back. You can't find what was the number, what was the power that you raised to get that result. And it's basically a very analogous situation where we, where like the best minds in the field believe it's not soluble except by brute force. And if that's the case, then all of our, you know, all of our Bitcoin stuff and all of our crypto that we use for these systems is safe but, but we that, don't have a proof that it's safe yeah but that's, nice. that's the difference right <laughs> yeah that's the difference <clears throat> so there could be some clever guy next year who comes up with a, a, a smart way of solving discrete log, log in really like a short time and therefore um, if we were using blinded amounts which were based on elliptic curve discrete log problem this guy this arbitrary mathematician slash hacker who doesn't exist. Oh, you mean <laughs> Just, fake Satoshi? Yeah, yeah for example, yeah, probably he, Craig's he, got a paper. He, yeah. he had a paper on this <laughs> yeah. that proved it. Actually, I wouldn't be surprised if that happened. <laughs> and then, but then the point is, yeah, we would be arguing about that all day because in a scenario of blinded amounts, we would only be arguing. We, we would never really know if somebody had printed coins. Well, well, like with Zcash. I think they, yeah. they had an issue like that. Uh, did they? Yeah, where there were a bunch of coins kind of printed out of nothing. Okay, I must miss that one, but it's certainly it's a scenario that they have to worry about all the time in in theory. And the difference with like each one's slightly different, but Monero and Zcash. Zcash is using kind of pairing crypto, and it's it's uh, another set of cryptographic assumptions on top of 
the basic cryptographic assumption that we use in, in Bitcoin. So it's another kind of layer at which they have to worry about, well, if there's a break, are we going to know it? You know, And I think they've even discussed, you know, maybe we should have certain points in time where we unblind all the amounts. We actually reveal the amounts. Well, it's what's really messy why, why'd you do Yeah, like, what's the purpose here? Well, no, the <laughs> idea would be to prove that nobody had... Well, well, yeah, but then you're you're giving up your privacy, yeah, which, right? Yeah, exactly. which, which is which is really you know, are we digital gold or yeah. are we something exactly, else? Right? Exactly, it really comes down to like what is the DNA of the, of the system that you're working with, and our DNA seems to be this kind of digital gold concept that it's finite and it's uh, verifiably finite. I mean, the point I was trying to make yesterday in the, in the in the panel, I was saying like, if we really think about it, what are we really focusing on with these systems? Is public verifiability? It's really the whole like essence of what's well, the new way we establish trust on the internet, right? And 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 sort of putting some overlay on the amount. I, I kind of hate that I'm making this argument, but I am trying to make this argument to other people. Is I'm saying, well, maybe we don't actually want blinded amounts unless you can come convince me with a different kind of cryptographic structure. Maybe you know these guys are smart. Some of them will come up with something. But the the in blinding the amounts, we don't introduce an extra assumption. Well, this is the and same. I don't think you're going to get consensus in Bitcoin on this. Well, and this is part of the the same argument, you know, the, with the block size debate is that as long as we have a secure base layer, yep. you know, we can build exactly. insecure second layer levels. Exactly, yeah. But we can't build secure second layer levels if we have an insecure first layer. Exactly, and I think the first concept of confidential transactions was let's build a side chain. And I think that's still the right way to do confidential transactions. Which we've got with like confidential assets and liquid. Yeah. That, with that liquid but of course, liquid is that very limited model federated. It maybe works fine for some situations, but obviously not for the whole like, right. ecosystem. So, but I really hope that we can keep looking into that model. Or if not that, then at least other things which are like off-chain based, you know, things that use, you know, open dimes and cold or, cards. Open, yeah. <laughs> Pieces of hardware like that is cool, but obviously it's a limited security model. But, you know, things like scriptless scripts, things where we can create trading in such a way that it's more private and it's more scalable. And if we use funky crypto constructions in there, like, for example, this new ECDSA two-party computation idea that's been bandied around recently, it's really cool. It means we could just like have a single pay to pub key hash, but we both own it like a two of two multi-sig, but nobody knows that it's a two of two multi-sig. That's perfect. And it is actually based on an extra assumption, but... You know, it doesn't matter because if we if we screw up, that's our problem. It's not the whole world's problem. So that's the problem I see with uh, if you if you, the whole blockchain, you have to have like such high standards in terms of any new features. Well, at least for the Bitcoin blockchain, <laughs> right? Yeah, well, yeah, that's true. I mean, that's an argument for altcoins, isn't it? The fact that they they can just experiment with anything. I mean, there is that argument. Yeah, which is it. which is you know they can experiment with it, and their yeah. blockchain doesn't have to exist in perpetuity. You know, yeah. and so you can. You can do all types of crazy stuff over there and then like oh, settle into the Bitcoin blockchain. And yeah. It would be nice if all that happened with sidechains, but it just doesn't seem to be happening at the moment. People don't seem to have found a security model that, that actually they all agree with, unfortunately. Yeah. So what has you most excited right now in the Bitcoin space or this whole uh, financial cryptography space? Yeah, I think all this stuff around, how to say, like, uh, like what Jonas Nick was talking about yesterday afternoon. And I want to investigate further because the first thing he presented was like a, a blind signature-based coin swap, which is a bit like what was previously called Tumblebit. It's a similar idea, but using using the Schnorr setup. But that's, that's interesting, but I already studied that. But what's really got me interested at the end of his talk, he talked about you could make uh, eCash tokens 
using the same kind of primitives. And this goes back to work by Stefan Brands in the, in the 90s. Like well, how, and David Chong. Yeah, you know, Chong, in, in, yeah. I mean, this could even be third layer type stuff going on top yeah, of lightning. On top of lightning, exactly right, yeah. I mean, <laughs> so, I mean, the obvious answer to your question is lightning because there's just so many interesting things going on and people are starting to build things on it. I mean, it's a very early days, but it's really fun. I mean, I don't know if you've tried it, but just, just, just buy things on lightning. It's kind of fun just trying it out. Of course, it's not perfectly reliable, but... Hopefully that will get better. But as you say, then there's like the whole L3 concept. We can add all this stuff like tokens or all kinds of applications on top of that. And that will be, then we'll be really getting, getting to what people, I think a lot of people originally thought of what Bitcoin is. It's just like this consumer payment system, but it isn't really, but that's where that But it happen. can be on yeah, these higher levels. That, that's where that will happen because you'll be able to introduce exactly the right trade-offs of user experience and, uh, you know, instant uh, lower well, I mean, or... we can do the anonymous digital cash in these layer threes that are on top of Lightning, which is doing onion routing, which is then yep. settling into yeah, <laughs> uh, like the base layer of Bitcoin. I mean, it's really shouldn't be that hard of a concept to get. You don't need a 32 megabyte like base layer, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. With, which, you know, talking a little bit about mining, I'd like to pick your brain a little bit about it. Because of your physics background, where, where are we looking at in terms of just the thermodynamics of, of these chips in, in the mining yeah. industry and I'm, how that affects our, the security of our base layer? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely not the expert on the hardware, but I, I do believe that we are reaching. Because I believe like the like atom size, as we're getting close to that, it's about a tenth of an angstrom, I think. And this is we're dealing. So we're dealing with like, when we talk about five, 10 nanometers, we're, we're pretty close to the size of an atom. So we, the, this idea that old mining is going to follow, you know, Moore's law. Keep, I think most people understand by now it's reaching a plateau. Yeah. And so, then, so then it'll it commoditize. Yeah, yeah. So hopefully it commoditizes after reaching a plateau. But I don't know. I mean, even, even if I was an expert in hardware, I would, I would struggle to make predictions about what's going to happen with that. Well, entrepreneurs hard. can be very creative. Yes, <laughs> right, right, exactly. I've always been a bit Panglossian about mining. I've always said to people, oh, you know, it's okay, so what if there's like one or two big players? Over time, the market will work it out. And even if it doesn't, you know, I always used to say, well, you know, it's all public. If they try and do something dodgy, we'll all know about it. But then Bitmain really came along and really it sort of <laughs> dented my optimism about things. But I think overall, even though it's been really hairy the last two years, I think it's kind of worked out. I mean, Prices are, yeah. Transactions are up. Full nodes are up. Yeah. Because I mean, it's really shown the importance of running your own full node. Absolutely. Wouldn't you agree? Very good point. Yeah. Yeah, that is a very good point. It was there was the, the, the sort of whole UASF movement last year. You know, it's difficult, and I nobody can say for sure exactly what caused what, but that was probably a very healthy thing. I think people get a, do, do get a bit too tribal. There's a little bit too much like rah rah, you know, very <laughs> aggressive about things. But you know, behind that, the fundamental concept that people are being more aware of. You know the fact that only if you if you use a full node that you own that you you can verify you can be a verifying participant on the net, network. I think that's it's really great that people are much more aware of that. Yeah. Is there any other you know before we close up the interview any other suggestions that you give to people? Well, you know, I don't know. Try not to be intimidated. Just just take part. This is a completely open ecosystem. You can do whatever you want. So don't be scared to 
you know, jump on IRC, jump on, I don't know, whatever your favorite social network is and, and talk to the developers. They're very open people, you know, and I know people think they're these scary monsters, but people like Peter Wooleroz, I mean, you can ask him questions. If it's an intelligent question, he'll probably answer. You. <laughs> we have a very open system. It's not like going into banking and you have to like go through 10 layers of bureaucracy to talk to the guy at the top. Um, read the white paper if that's where you're starting from and, and, and just jump in and get involved. Yeah. Okay, well, we've had a wonderful interview. Uh, thanks so much for taking time with us. We've been talking with Adam Gibson, working on Join Market, Coin Join, Coin Shuffle, Bulletproofs, all of these types of things. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Be sure to get a copy of the free Bitcoin Guide at freebitcoinguide.com. Got a question or suggestion? Record your voice at bitcoin.kn. Don't be shy. To help the show, share Bitcoin.kn with friends, post about it on Reddit, and otherwise, spam the interwebs. Your iTunes comments and five-star reviews are very important to us. Please continue tuning in to the Bitcoin Knowledge Podcast, where we release interviews with the top people in the Bitcoin world. Now take some choline and let that Bitcoin knowledge consolidate.